Well, last week was the great high place when we came up to Easter, which was such a wonderful time, and it was good to be able to worship together. What we're going to do now is coming up in about maybe five weeks, maybe six, we're going to be starting a short series that deals with going along with the Ten Commandments. Now, for some people, it's like, no, not the Ten Commandments. Uh, Ten Commandments is an amazing, amazing part of God's Word. And we're going to be doing some time working on those passages, and it's really... You see, you look at that stuff came back from like 2,000 years ago, and it still speaks to us today. And so we're going to be doing that. But before that, we're going to have maybe about five different passages that we're going to be looking at together from the book of Psalms. Today, if I went through and said, what is your most favorite book in the New Testament, there'd be a lot of people come up with different things. I'll bet some people would say, Romans. Please tell me that you think Romans was one of the good ones because we did that big series in Romans. But there's other good ones. You know, there's so many good things in the, in the New Testament. But if I asked you, what's your favorite thing from the Old Testament? What passage would you like the most? I'd be willing to bet. I'm not a betting person. But if I was, I would think for a lot of people, it would be the Psalms. Over centuries, many, many people have seen the Psalms as one of their most significant things because it's so much is true to life. It's like they're excited, thanking God for all that he's done, and then they're lamenting because things are not going as they should and things are struggling and all those things that happen. For many people, the Psalms is just an absolute book that many, many people would use. And so we're going to be looking at several of them, and today we're going to be starting at the first one. It goes very in the beginning. I mean, it's interesting to think about it. I'll just give you a little bit more background about the Psalms. I realize some of you know all about the Psalms and you've read about it, but just give you a little background real quick before we look at this passages. There's two, verse, two sections we're going to be looking at together. When we talk about the book of Psalms, what's one of the amazing things is it's like this book of Psalms may have gone on for maybe a thousand years of development. From way back in the very beginning, until all the way came up, until the, maybe the time of Christ, what well, we saw that there was more and more growing. They were putting things together, and it was a growing process along the way. And how God was so working in such incredible way to give us what we needed, what we needed to hear, and what God wanted to speak to us. And so it's something that took a, quite a long time to get together until it all happened. And um, by the way, I think we're running out of um, power here, so maybe... If you could watch me, or maybe, uh, Michael, if you could get me, I need a battery. Can you give me a battery? Fresh. It's fresh. I'm not fresh. Uh, oh, there, well, no, it's not. Try it again? It's not working. Oh, turning it on, that's the important part of it? No, it is on. All right, I turned it off. Just talk among yourselves for a moment. Try it again. Let's see if we got it now. Ah, we've got it. Those miracle men in the back there, we're very grateful for them. You remember last week, with, here it was Easter, and we had all these problems, things that was going on. That was a wreck. Uh, finally, we got there just before everything went, and so we're grateful for that. Anyways, when you look at the book of Psalms, there's different ways to approach it. For one thing, there's like three major types of Psalms, and it's the, probably the most common ones that you think about, and that is simply this. Number one is praise. 
of the three of them, one of the most important we see in the book of Psalms is people wanting to praise God. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you that you're my savior. Thank you that you have helped my family. And the little snippet of it from the book of Psalms 18. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And it goes on talking about, Lord, we're so grateful for what you do. So number one, praise is the one of the three that's most important that most people see when they look at the book of Psalms. The second one is like the, almost the opposite. It's lament. It's lament. Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's interesting because we live in a culture that has like things are good and everything's wonderful and everybody's cool. We have problems dealing with sorrow. It's interesting. Um, if you look at the hymns that most of we sing as Christians today, there's really not a lot of room for sorrow. There's a lot of happy, happy, slappy, happy songs about how Jesus is so happy and makes me happy. But what about the person who just lost their husband and their heart is broken? How many hymns do you know that deal with loss? It's part of our culture that doesn't want to have to deal with the reality that one day you're going to die unless you're alive when Jesus returns in power and glory. And so if the first one, this one that we talked about first, about the joy of worshiping God, the second one is the lament. How long, God? We've suffered so much. Why have you not helped us? And for many people, that's a real issue. Why does God not always answer our prayers the ways we think he ought to do it? The third one is pretty one you could think about. That's thanksgiving particularly in the last 50 pages of the Psalms, there's a lot about thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the, prop, among, the prop, among the people. In other words, three kind of major ways of looking at it. And besides that, there's 50 other different smaller ones along the way. And it's interesting, there's so much material there for us to look at. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at these Psalms because Psalms 1 and 2 are very unusual. One of the things that's unusual about them is there's nothing attached to them. It just says Psalm 1. And it's like, usually what it says, Psalm 1, written when David was out in the couch somewhere and he was being chased by Saul. Most of the Psalms that we see have some kind of attestation on the side connected to it telling us, who was this from? Was that from Asaph? Was that from one of the other rulers? Was this from David? We don't know. The first two are often thought of being kind of like the prelude or the preface before the book of Psalms. And so it's interesting, you got two of them. One is just a very short little one, as we'll see in a moment. Then there's a longer one. And yet we wish we knew more. Who wrote that? Who started that? We don't know. It's all part of the mystery of the book of Psalms. And so we're going to be picking this up as we look about this. What we're going to see is in these two little Psalms, one short one, one longer, there's two major themes that come throughout of it. And the very first one, interesting, is wisdom, is wisdom. Many of us have studied, you know, the book of Proverbs, where there's all these Proverbs about this and being wise and so much teaching that's so important. But it's interesting that here, at the very beginning of this big book of 150 verses, of a, 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 you, have, you have here wisdom being one of the primary, primary things that they focus on. Wisdom is one of the big ones. 
And the other one is one you might not think of. It's the law that the Jewish call called the Torah. And the law, of course, the law that was given to God to Moses there at Mount Sinai. And it's interesting because some of us, a lot of us Christians, we've been Christians so long, we realize law, whoop, 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 we know that we're no longer under the law. And because we're no longer under the law, we don't need the law. You know, a lot of times we've read the scripture so often through the, through the idea of how the apostle Paul was telling us, you're no longer under law, you're under grace. You don't need to do, you can actually have a hot dog and be okay with about it, you know. All these things that are happening, and we sometimes forget that the people of that time, they didn't see the law as something that restricted them. They thought that was God in his mercy that was giving them some things to understand so they could live a life with their friends and their neighbors and those around them that was, that was important to God. And it was important for the God to see how people were working on those issues. And so the very first one here is very short, Psalm number 1. And it goes like this, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Notice some of the words, mockers, sinners, wicked, three different people all describing these same three people. These are the people that have turned away. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And this passage, of course, is giving, going back to that idea of saying, God has given us laws for our help, for our encouragement to keep us out of trouble. So when he said, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of the mockers, it's saying this is the person that's trying to live the right way, the way that's honoring to God. And then he gives the opposite of what it should be. He says, but his delight, that man, that woman who's reading this psalm says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, for some of us, it's like, what are we doing? Praying all day, all night? I mean, when can you get a sandwich? When can you sleep? I mean, obviously, he's not saying that you have to be sleeping all the time. I mean, working on it all the time. But his point is, he said, he said, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Of course, we take this into the New Testament era that we're talking about, and we see now we've God has given us the written scriptures in the New Testament. And it goes on, of course, that's helpful for us in an important way. But his point that he's making here is his delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. As you know, in the Middle Ages, there were times there were people in different convents and different groups and stuff. Things. Some of the things that they would do were very interesting. They read passages like this, said the law meditates day and night. Well, you can't do it that. You run out of steam. So another would say, okay, you've got four hours. Another guy's got four hours. The point was in their place, in their monastery, there was always somebody who was reading the scriptures. Kind of a lovely way to think about it, that everybody, there was always somebody who was awake who was reading the scriptures and praying for those in need. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Then he makes a little twist here. He says, he, this person who's, who comes to the law, he's like, a, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. I've had a number of people say, you know, when you go to Israel, you feel like you're in West Texas. It's very similar. It's very, very dry. 
and you know it's dusty and the way it is in Israel when you're there in most of the places and you know there's a lot of areas where there's like no rain I mean they'll go a long time with no rain but boy when it finally does come there's a lot of rain and you get the water that's coming out of the mountains up from Israel and they come down and it's all this all of a sudden it's like it's like a tree planted by streams of water it's like suddenly there's water and everything starts growing and it grows fast and then, of course, as time goes, then it takes off and it's gone. But the point is, this person who's committed to the scriptures, who's committed to God, he's like, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. In other words, this is a person whose life is committed to God. And then he goes back to the contrast, not so with the wicked. You know what they're like? They're like chaff that the wind blows away. We know what it's like in time of Israel and they have the, the fields. They would break it all open. They would take it and they would throw it up in the air and that light chaff would just kind of float away and they'd take it out of the way. And he's saying, you know what? Not like the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. You're like, you're gone. Therefore, it says, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of righteous. He's telling us, be careful who you were with. Be careful why you make your decisions. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. You know, it's interesting. I think I had this in the saying, yeah, here's the warning that's not from the scriptures, but from me. But it reminds us again how much we are impacted by those people we hang around with and those people that we uh, see at school and at work. <coughs> from what we hear, from what we read, with whom we hang around with, television, internet, it's molding you and me, it's forming us. Many of you are familiar with Kathleen Norris, who's been a writer for a long time. But she had an issue thing. She was really strung out. She was not feeling well. And so she said, I'd like to go to a tapas monastery and just spend a month there and kind of get my act together. And so she went there and stayed at a monastery for an entire month. And it was interesting what she'd said when it was finished. She said, you know what? I couldn't believe how much I changed in one month. I was saturated every day by hearing the sounds of the ones who were singing the psalms. And I realized that my life was changing. And one of the things she said in her, when she wrote within this story, she said, things that seemed so important to me that day I walked in there, did not seem particularly important anymore. And I found out that the things that were my priorities, I found out there really should not be my priorities. And she said, it changed me. Now think about that. We are impacted by those around us. We keep saying, we're the independent person. That's what America's all about. I'm the one. It's like, you know what? We're very much impacted by people around us. And this passage is particularly talking to young people. The people you hang, about, hang around with are going to have an impact on your life. And the psalmist is saying, be careful. Be really careful and live a life that's honoring to God. This is the first of the two little ones that we're doing. This one's just a little bit longer, but stay with me if you would. Remember, the first two, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. There's nothing that says, Bob wrote this. You know, All we have is the passage itself. Psalm 2 goes this way. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? This is kind of the idea of, of this is one of the kings, one of the kings of Israel. 
And the, ain't the people around them, the nations that surround them, they're like, we're going to take this guy out. We're going to get rid of him. We're going to be in charge around here. And so he said, why do the nations conspire against the people and plot in vain? In other words, why would they think they could go against God? These are God's people. God's not going to let his people be destroyed. But the people go, oh, yeah? You just wait and see. You think you're summoned? We've got all these different you know, groups all around us, Moabites, all the Ite brothers, all these different people. They're going to take him out. He says, no, you're not. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? It's a waste of time. Why are you doing it? The king of the earth takes their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against, notice phrase, the anointed one. That word anointed is important in the whole story. We talk about Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Hamashiach, the one who is the anointed one. Anointed one was usually either a priest or a king, sometimes maybe a warrior. But the idea of the one who's anointed by God, chosen by God. So the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his anointed one. And he's saying, they're coming against me, God. All these ites peoples, Moabites, Noabites, all of them are here. They're all to get me. God says, you know what? They're nothing. Notice what he says in this passage. Hey, let's break their chains, they say. You're going to throw off their fetters. You're not going to tell us what to do. And then we don't often think of God this way. It's more common in the Old Testament than new. The one enthroned in heaven. Last, the Lord scoffs at him. Like, really? Come at it, guys. You think you're going to take me out? I guess you didn't hear about our God. I guess you really don't believe that really we have a God that's greater than any God you've ever experienced. And he said, so really? You think you're going to take me out? Go ahead. Anytime you'd like to start, let's see what's going to happen. He says, God laughs. We don't normally think about God laughing. But it's like God's laughing saying, really? You don't get it. These are my people. These are my chosen people. These are the people that God has brought a relationship with him. He's not going to let them be destroyed. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then God finally takes a little statement here. He goes, and he rebukes them in his anger. And he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He's probably here speaking about David. Remember King David? King David, after he'd fought all these battles, all these terrible battles, but things were going good with him, and he came to Nathan and said, you know what? I have got this unbelievable palace, but the Ark of the Covenant is out here in a tent. That's not right. So uh, go tell Nathan, go tell the Lord that I want to go and build a nice place for him so you can, he can have a nice place too. And you remember the story what happens. He takes it to the Lord, and the Lord says, no, you're not going to do it that way. You remember the story what happens. Second, it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you're interested in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's where the Lord comes back through the prophet and says this, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. He's not talking about bricks and mortar. He's talking about a house of family, son, grandsons, great-grandsons, great-great-great-great-grandsons. In other words, David, I'm going to give you family. And I'm going to give you a lot of family. And they're going to go on for a long time. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a, quote, house for you. When your time comes, when you're going to die, and you rest with your fathers, 
I'm going to raise up after you your descendants. So it's going to be David, Solomon, Jairus, Josiah, going to go on and on. And he said, I'm going to raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body. In other words, that's, they're going to literally have the right DNA, once generation after generation, who will come from your body. And notice this, thing, this, this promise. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Talk about a wonderful promise. This God saying, these kings, if they will follow me, you're going to find one after another after another being protected by God, being used by God to have an impact in the lives of people, going to have your thrones going to go on forever if you'll just follow me. He had given them said, do, do this, follow me, and you will have that. And so we have in this passage, it goes in verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. Now notice this important phrase. He said to me, quote, here's a famous phrase, you are my son. This is like God speaking. I would assume he's speaking to David and to the followers that came from him. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth your possessions. Now notice what he's saying here. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. You are my son. David, you're my son. You're the one that I believe is the one that now we're going to have a line of kings going all the way back from the kings of Judah until it all was destroyed. But his point is, fellowship, I mean, follow, following God, you can understand how your God is going to work one generation after generation. Turn away from God, you're not going to believe how awful it can be. And so what he says here is, but you are my father, you're the father. Ask me and I'll make you the nations your inheritance. Now notice what he says in this last little section. You will rule them with an iron scepter. They didn't do a lot with iron, but having a scepter that's iron, that's heavy and that's powerful, and particularly if you're hitting somebody with it. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You're going to dash them to pieces like pottery. They had lots of pottery in Israel. You find pieces of it everywhere because they made them out of clay pots and stuff, and they, were, they got broken very easily. But you take that big iron piece, and you smash it with that piece. It's like, man, that's nothing left by the time you're done with it. And so he uses that as an example. You will rule with them and, and with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, not just you, David, but Solomon, but the ones that follow on, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. And here's this famous phrase, serve the Lord with fear. Now, a lot of us are not too thrilled about that passage. So, you know, serve the Lord with fear. Jesus loves us, isn't he? Jesus loves me, this I know. It's all true. It's all true. We need to recognize, too, that our God can be a God of fire. And when he says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and then there's this unusual phrase, kiss the sun. By the way, if you're reading a different translation, it may be slightly different. I think the Holman Christian standard that we normally use has the idea of honor the sun. But it's the idea of this is the sun, not just any sun, but the ultimate sun. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you look at it and you say, what was that all about? 
It's like it starts off and it's like, I'm not quite sure I get it all. And that's okay. We've got something that's been going on being built for a thousand years. You could see how things change along the time. But the point that's important here is saying how that psalm, which we don't know who wrote it, we wish we did, all we know is it's there. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. Know nothing about it other than it seems to be the beginning of these long psalms. And it has three different ways. In the early time, the time of David, it went back to the promise. I will be your king. I mean, you will be the king, and I will be with you, and I will support you, and I'll support your son and your grandson, your grandsons, as long as they keep following me. He tells them that's the great promise that he gave them. You go on a little bit further, and you find out those kings did not always do what they were supposed to do. Some of them became unbelievably terrible. And God said, you know what? You know that I keep my promises. Mm-hmm, we know that, God. You know what the other promise was? If you turn away, it's going to be disaster. They didn't believe it. They didn't think it was going to happen. Pfft, not going to happen. God says, really? Watch. The first one talks about the purpose at first was saying, here's it is to David. But now he's saying, guess what? We're taking you out. The, top, the best of you, the, the ones that are, had the most opportunities, the smartest, the best uh, people there, we're taking them all out, and we're going to destroy that beautiful temple that was once one of the wonders of the world, and we're taking it all out. And what that meant for them was no longer about David. It's about the fact, what in the world are we going to do when we're in a foreign land and we're a broken people? For many people, it seemed like it's the end of the story. Story's finished, all done, they were destroyed. The Babylonians were smart. They took the people, rather than letting them be all in one place, they gathered them away in different areas, so they would all marry with other people. And by time would go along the way, they were all about the same thing. They all just mangled together. But what's happening here when we have the point about the captivity, it's those other people said, no, let's stay faithful as much as we can and what we're doing. And there were people like Jeremiah, and even before and after, who said, you know what? I know we've had a disaster. You know that many people are dead. A lot of people say, just give up. It's never going to happen. Our story's finished. And the prophet comes in and says, you better get ready. You're going to be OK. And not only that, you're going back to Israel. And you can just imagine the people said, yeah, sure. How would we get there, for one thing? And who, why would we even think that that's going to happen? The Babylonians are going to let us come back and build all the walls? And people are going, it ain't going to happen. Just go ahead and you know, open up a store, do something you have to do. You know, it's, it was tragic. It was good for its time. God says, you know what? I told you. I told you, I told you through Jeremiah. I told you in Ezekiel that in your Babylonian captivity, if you will turn to me, and repentance and understand the sin that brought this on you. He says, you know what? I'm going to bring you back. And you can imagine the people who said, never going to happen. Impossible. Impossible. God says, really? <laughs> Nothing is impossible with God. So the purpose in the early one was for David. The second one was for those in captivity. And the third one was Thank you, Lord Jesus. There's a man named Jesus, Yeshua, Yasha, which means to save. He is the Savior. He is the Mashiach. He is, that is, the anointed one. And his name is Jesus. 
and we have a Savior, and we have a relationship with God that can never be taken away. And it's saying, this is what it's all about. That in the Old Testament, we saw God at work preparing for the New Testament. And then he's come, and Jesus has brought life. And people are seeing Jesus doing miracles that people had never seen or even imagined before were happening. And yet they realized that same person was going to go to a cross, not because of what he did wrong. He did nothing wrong. But he did it out of mercy, and he did it out of grace, and he did it for you. He was willing to take my sin, your sin, upon his cross, that we who have been away from God can have a relationship with him through recognizing, through repentance and faith, saying, Lord, I've made mistakes. I know I've sinned. You call me a sinner? That's true. And Lord, will you forgive me? And at the very core of it, and the very core of all that is forgiveness. Jesus is saying, I do forgive you. You're my child. You're my daughter. You mean something to me. And you can have a life that's honoring with God. And you see it come through the Old Testament into the New Testament and hopefully, hopefully into your heart. Lord, we thank you for this opening understanding of this passage. We thank you, Lord, that it tells us so much about not just the Old Testament, but how it happened now in the New Covenant that you've given us. We pray that you'd be with us now. Encourage us, strengthen us, we pray, as we continue, particularly as we come to the Lord's table. Prepare our hearts to be open to you, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.